This is Channel 253. Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Jenny Jacobs and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. I'm Jenny. I'm Doug. And we are the Citizen Tacoma podcast, empowering an informed electorate. I thought we were informing an empowered electorate. In in the the city city of destiny. Hi, Doug. Hi, Jenny. So the elections have passed, and there are still many issues that are facing Tacoma. So up until the filing date of 2018, we will be discussing some of those. And today we talked about the LNG plant. That's right. We spoke with Claudia Reedner, who uh, speaks for herself and for RedefineTacoma.org. Listen in. Hello, Claudia, and welcome to Citizen Tacoma. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Hello. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to come to talk to us. So today we are going to learn about the LNG plant that is may or may not be happening down in the port of Tacoma. And I know that a lot of people know a lot about this topic, but we like to be accessible here at Citizen Tacoma. So we're going to talk as if no, as if we don't know anything about it. So um, can you please explain for anyone who doesn't know, what is the LNG plant? Where exactly is it? Kind of an overview. Sure, I'd be glad to. So LNG stands for liquefied natural gas. So what happens is um, Puget Sound Energy purchases gas, often from Canada, fracked gas, fracked gas mostly, and it is piped, or it would be piped to the port of Tacoma. The location is right next to the East 11th Street Bridge. Mm. It's between the Halibos and the Blair Waterway. And it's situated on top of two existing Superfund sites. Okay. And so the facility, it's a refinery, meaning it would take the raw fracked gas and it would have to refine it to become nearly 100% pure methane. And then it would get cooled down. The gas would be cooled down to minus 260 Fahrenheit. When it cools, it condenses. And so the main purpose for doing it this way is to store a lot more energy in a, in a much smaller space. So you can um, make it 600 times smaller when you freeze the gas. Hmm. So that's, that's how it becomes LNG. And LNG is supposedly better as a fuel <laughs> because... There are several benefits that are touted, and and some of them do have claim to fame. For example, if LNG were to spill on a waterway, it could potentially harm sea life that's near the surface, and it would would harm people nearby because the cryogenic cloud, like you now heard, is very, very cold. Mm. So you would experience burns and things like that, but it would not spoil the water the way, let's say, oil or crude oil or tar sands would Mm. do. So it wouldn't spoil the water, but it would carry risk for for climate change, for methane, and it would carry risks for potentially catching fire and blowing back to the tank. Hmm. So the benefit is it doesn't spoil the water. And the benefit is that it does, if you look at it at a very, very small portion just for Tacoma, just for burning in two tow chips, it would reduce emissions a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. However, in the overall picture for the overall um, air hazards and air pollutants assessment for Tacoma, it would actually increase our number numbers by quite a bit. Hmm. Could could you explain that? Could you go on a little bit further about that? How sure. how how is it more? How is it, how does it, how is it increased? It would increase because it's not just gas from the pipeline being put on the ship. It has to go through all these processes, and those are refining processes. The the refinery would have four flares. One of the flare stacks is going to be 85 feet tall and expel toxic air pollutants at 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. So because of the scale and the size of it, and because it being in an urban center, the air, air pollutants are pretty serious, and that's why the Puget on Clean Air Agency right now is holding public hearings. And that's fairly unusual for any agency to hold such public hearings. But they're having several public hearings because of the risk of air pollutants. So it's the refining process is, it's is the, what increases the... It's the refining okay. process. And also, as, as we uh, understand... Um, over 70% of all the gas is fracked. It's not natural. And the fracking process means you take a bunch of chemicals, and they are usually uh, proprietary, meaning they are not known to the public. And you mix those chemicals with water and sand, and you basically blast shale rock open, and that releases gas, and it releases also oil and gas, gasoline. And so because of those chemicals, they will mix with the gas, and many of those pollutants that are, like I said, proprietary, will be pumped in with the gas. And those pollutants, sometimes they contain radioactive materials, they can contain lead and cadmium and heavy metals and other toxins, toluene and formaldehyde and benzene and all these different endocrine disruptors, and they will get pumped to the facility where they have to get scrubbed out. That's the refining process. And then those chemicals are either going to be burned off in a flare or they're going to be collected and disposed of some other place where it likely will create another, you know, um, in, in polluted in, in, Endocrine dis- disruption means bad for you pretty much, right? Endocrine disruption means that it is um, playing with your hormone system. It's yeah. it's very dangerous when you're pregnant. It's dangerous when you want to become pregnant. And it generally affects reproductive systems um, quite a bit. And it's not just for humans, of course. When it goes into the air, what goes up must come down. It'll end up in the water and it uh, very strongly can affect fish and, and other sea life, of course. Ugh. Okay. Um, I was hoping to give you the opportunity to explain why some of the arguments that people make in favor of the LNG plant are not valid. Um, the first thing people talk about is jobs. It's going to create all these jobs. Is that true? So, okay, to the jobs question, it's kind of a three-part question. Jobs from the actual building of the facility, construction jobs, jobs mm-hmm. from actually operating the refinery, and jobs that supposedly would be saved because without LNG, we've been told Toad would leave town. Mm-hmm. So let's look at those three. Number one, jobs for construction. Yes, it would create for a short period, it would create about 250 jobs, construction jobs. And they're already working down there without a permit, but let's get to that later. (laughs) So it would uh, potentially create 250 jobs. Now, when you talk to um, different people that are actually in construction around the area, construction is red hot. I don't know how many cranes are in Seattle. 
20, 25 at the moment. I don't know. So anybody who works in construction knows that um, it's it's very busy. And those jobs, oftentimes when it's this busy, will be fulfilled by people driving in from Idaho, from Montana, from, from surrounding communities. And that doesn't mean that it's bad to provide jobs for people from out of state, but it's really not a local jobs question. Right. And we know this by looking at license plates of trucks that go to the facility, or if we look at the actual contractors and subcontractors that are working at the facility, they're all from out of state, out of town for sure. Mm-hmm. So that's construction. Actual operation of the refinery um, would be handled by 16 to 18 people. And that's a facility that would operate 24-7 and 365 days a year. So that would mean about three to four people per shift. That's about the level of a 7-Eleven staffing. And so those three to four people per shift would have to monitor all the equipment. And then there is tank fueling and ship fueling and gasification, regasification, the freezing of the gas itself. So there are all these moving part components to where I feel like those 18 jobs, um, is it really worth the risk for those 18 jobs? Hmm. And then part three of the jobs question, and that's potentially the one that that people feel like it's the most important, and that is Tote. Yeah. And as we know, Tote is a shipping company. They provide shipping uh, goods and and a lot of military goods um, to um, Alaska. And so uh, those jobs um, would, would be longshoremen jobs. Of course, because those are our people that load and unload those ships. Now, um, if Tote would not receive LNG, what would they do? Would they leave town? Would they go to Seattle? Is there space in Seattle? Is it cheaper in Seattle? Is the military in Seattle or is it in Tacoma? Are the train lines from the military to Tote in Tacoma or are they in Seattle? So those are all the questions we have to look at and then take into account that the Tacoma Longshoremen have a great reputation. They can load or unload one of those ships in eight hours. And so that's really quality workmanship. It's really fast, which means it's cheaper for tote. And so they don't have the land in Seattle. They don't have they don't they would it would cost them a lot more to build a dock, a new dock. A terminal in Seattle. So if you if you look at all those things, it, it, it becomes clear pretty quickly that Tote has no incentive to leave. It's cheaper down here. We have a great workforce. And of course, that the most important thing, the military is right there. So so what's the talk of the federal mandate that that says that there needs to be cleaner fuel burning in those ships? So that's is that yeah, that's that's correct. That's a uh, that's an international uh, maritime organization, and it's called the Marpol Annex um, Number Six, and that basically means that by twenty twenty, um, all the all the maritime going ships, uh, U.S. owned ships, that are in our waters near shore, meaning two hundred mi- nautical miles miles from shore, have to burn cleaner fuel, and it's um, it's mostly got to do with with sulfur oxides because those are really acidic and those are really dangerous both for the environment and and for breathing. So. Um, there is actually no mandate for any maritime industry to switch to LNG. What they could do and what they should have done a long time ago is instead of buying the dirtiest but cheapest heavy bunker fuel, they could have switched to light diesel. 
And then on top of that, they can also use scrubbers. And there's two methods. There's a, a dry scrubbing system and a wet scrubbing system. And the wet scrubbing system is unfortunate because it actually dumps the chemicals in the water. It washes it out right into the ocean, so that's actually a negative. But with the dry system, you'd actually remove the chemicals and, and dispose of them instead of putting them into the air. So if, if, there are all, all, if there are alternatives to LNG, but LNG is being pushed on us, or however you'd want to say it, who benefits from LNG? That's a big, that's a big complicated question. Mm. So um, Toad wants to do something environmental. And burning gas, if you only look at, it, at, its, at its end point of use, actually has benefits over diesel. But you, if you look at the whole um, supply chain from the gas, from the fracking, from the piping, from the refining, and the scale of it for here in Tacoma, you actually have no air advantage. So we can pretty much scrap that um, maritime organization air regulation as far as it being the reason. So who benefits is for sure Puget Sound Energy, and, and we'll get maybe back to this a little bit later, how they benefit financially from this. But Puget Sound Energy benefits from it and Tope benefits from it too, at least for now, because fracked gas is, we're in a glut, it's very abundant, and therefore it's very cheap. So if they can buy a cheap source that's made for them right in the port, um, they don't have to pay for transportation, they have a pipeline straight to the ship. So it's, it's definitely a big financial benefit to Tote. And so far, even though it is cheaper, you know, we've been waiting. This has been going on for years. And we've been waiting for other customers to come aboard just to see what kind of broad appeal it has. And so far, nobody has come aboard. There was briefly talk for the Washington State Ferries to switch to LNG, but they disbanded all those ideas and now are looking at electric ferries. And electric ferries are already happening. They're already in use. They're already in Scandinavia. And as we know, our area has abundant green electricity, hydroelectricity that has a very um, low carbon footprint. And I believe they could um, do much more with electricity. So it sounds like what you're saying is the LNG option is the easiest option, not the best option. <laughs> well, look at it that way. We have a fossil fuel crisis. Can fossil fuels solve the fossil fuel crisis? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so people, I think you you covered that another argument is that it's better than what we're currently using. That's, that's another good point. So... Um, if you look, if you look at air emissions, if you look at um, the impacts on on climate chaos that fracked gas has, it's pretty mm -hmm. tremendous. It's eighty five times, not percent, eighty five times worse as a climate change accelerator. So if if we are really honest about about building resiliency, like the city likes to say, and if we're really honest, are going carbon neutral by twenty fifty, that's a promise the port has just made to the citizens. If we really want to aim at that, then tying us in into 50 years of methane is, is not a good way to go. So for, from that point of view, from a climate change point of view, it's not, it's not really very good. And then if you look at it locally, because of two things, the scale and the, the longevity of this new 
fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah. And so what, what I actually have said since day one is if it's truly transitional, if it's truly here to fuel tote, build a small one. Build a tiny one that's not made for profit, but that's truly made for transitioning. And then it could be in the port. It would be a lot safer. It would be a lot less polluting, and it would still be able to handle those two towed ships. Now, mind you, towed already uses shore power. So when those ships are at berth, they're actually not spewing diesel emissions. This is a really great thing. So why doesn't the port switch all the boat, all the ships that dock, make it a, man- a mandate? Any ship that docks in the port by 2025 has to use shore power. That's possible right now. And then the port, um, for example, also promised that the fleet of trucks that comes in and out of the port um, with cargo, that they would have to follow much stricter air standards. And they have not followed through with the commitment to the point where the executive director of the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency a couple of weeks ago asked asked Tacoma Port Commissioners if they actually believe that the people of Tacoma's health is worth less than the people in Seattle because the Port of Seattle has cleaned up their diesel emissions and in Tacoma has not gotten any better. Like so like let's look at all the sources and all the pollution and look look at the overall picture and not just pluck one little one little part, which is, you know, two towed ships. Yeah. So, so uh, going back to the idea of it being a smaller facility, um, that a smaller facility could to, could do the job with fueling the tow ships, uh, and you mentioned not uh, a larger one, the, not have the profit involved with a larger one. So, with the larger one as it stands right now to be built, what what pro, who's making profit? Is there excess LNG being made that's going to be exported or moved somewhere? What's what's the what can you tell us the plan with the facility as it's drawn up right now? It's a, it's um. It's not as simple as just actually having a customer and then making profit off of that because that would be the normal way of doing business. And that's, you know, that's just a free market and that's a good way of doing business. But what happened here is that um, Puget Sound Energy has claimed that 43% of their LNG capacity would be for residential gas users. Now, let's look at this. Puget Sound Energy has around 790,000 gas um, residential customers. Puget Sound Energy has a underground gas storage vault down south of Chehalis that holds enough gas for 1.2 million gas customers. So they already have an overabundance of stored gas. So they really would have no reason to roll 43% of this LNG refinery over to the public. And even when you ask them now what are actual numbers, they will tell you that it's about 7% of the LNG would be used every few years on the very coldest days of the year to supplement, you know, for home heating gas when everybody turns on their heater. So why is the public called to pay 43%? That's that's $134 million that the public needs to pay. And then mind you, Puget Sound Energy only has a $35 million liability insurance for this. So our public investment at this point is not protected. And then another way they're making money is that in 2014, two of our state representatives put in a tax break um, for 
very specifically for LNG, and that would afford PSC another up to seven point nine million dollars every budget. Who, who did so, that? So that's who was you know, that? sorry. C- can you tell who me who that was? Who, who those legislators were? Um, it's um, yeah, it's Jake Fay who who authored this, and and Lori Jenkins uh, co 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 sponsored okay. it. So it's it's the two of them. Right. So and it's it's very specific for LNG as a transportation fuel, and those tax breaks are not also benefiting um, home home users. So gas for home users is actually more expensive than LNG. And then um, for mitigation, Puget Sound Energy was supposed to do two things that have to do with safety. One of them is to, you know, supply the fire station that's actually right across from the LNG facility, which is not a good location if you have an accident. And they also were supposed to um, redo, remake Taylor Taylor Way Road for heavy haul trucking because it's very dangerous. It's full of potholes and it's not good if you put LNG tanker trucks on the road. Now... Those two points of mitigation also have been rolled over to the public already, in a sense, because the fire station is not going to be paid um, to to staff by PSC, but it's coming straight out of the Tacoma City budget, which is about um, 1.5 million every other year just for that station. And then the makeover of Taylor Way is actually going to be rolled over to future businesses in the port. So they all have to chip in for for the repairs of the road instead of PSC. So those are all ways that PSC is actually, um, you know, making making more money than they would if they would have to operate in a regular free market. And PSC is owned by whom? Puget Sound Energy, they like to say they're local um, and, and, and sure they're, they're you know their staff and their gas vehicles and all that is, but the the actual business have has been purchased by uh, the McCoy Group, and they're um, they're out of Australia and and um, the media in Australia calls them the Millionaires Factory because they know how to purchase um, natural resources and toll roads and that's how that's how they're making their money. Their their CEO made eighteen million dollars just last year. Ugh, this is all so terrible. Oh. Well, I ask that because I think a lot of people think of PSE as well. It's our local power company, right? It's just our local power company controlled uh, by us, right? That that would be TPU. That's yeah. Tacoma Public right. Utilities. And they right. don't do gas. I wish they would uh, I wish they would do gas also so that we don't have a private monopoly handling all our gas. Hmm. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 sister show, The Nerd Farmer Podcast. Did you know that Alaska Airlines is the inaugural sponsor of Channel 253? If we've been doing our job right, hopefully you did. So here's the deal. Alaska is our hometown airline. That matters. They're part of this community, Seattle and Tacoma. Alaska treats me like a human. No, more than that. They treat me like a neighbor. Let me tell you a story. One of my favorite routes, Route 3, comes back from DC. I spend the day in the city, and then catch a cab at 4 o'clock and get home by 10 p.m. That's the flight our elected officials take, too. I've met and seen Senator Murray, Senator Cantwell, and the governor. There's a sense of community in that. Next time you need to fly, don't go to the travel sites. Just skip them. Go to alaskaair.com. You'll thank me later. I'm Nate Bowling, Alaska Airlines MVP, and I fly Alaska. Okay, so the position is that fossil fuels are bad, 
and that we don't want to invest in infrastructure that furthers the use of fossil fuels. So what are other ports doing internationally better than Tacoma and what can we do? What, what should Tacoma be doing in this situation? I think the solution, like with just about everything else, lies into a variety of ideas, a variety of technologies, and a diversity of thought. And so what other, other ports are doing, like in, in California, they're doing, they're switching to electricity. And, but unfortunately, so Tacoma is not very thrilled when we're talking about electricity, when we're talking about electric ships. And that's because if you switch to electric, it's much easier to automate all the systems. Mm. And so ports in California have, several of them have switched to, you know, electricity. And that means it brings a lot of automation and that way you actually do lose jobs. So with that point, you have to be going slowly and cautiously and take everything into account, which with this LNG hasn't happened. Basically, no public opinion has been taken into account. But so with those systems, um, I think the best way of doing it is, is like you say, what, what are, are the people doing? What are international ports doing? And there's ferries that run on electricity. There are shipbuilders now that are using um, hydrogen to power ships. Um, they they build new cargo ships that are much more aerodynamic. And so the shape of the hull itself, for example, can can help with mm. uh, lowering the energy uses. And I, w I would like to see all those cargo ships having solar panels, especially if they go trans-Pacific or transatlantic. They're out in the open sea with a lot of light. So if, the, if it would be more um, creative and more diverse... I think together we can definitely move move cleaner quicker than just replacing one dirty fuel with another dirty fuel. Can you talk a bit about the tribes impact the impact to the tribe and their role in um, opposing the LNG plant? Yeah, there are um, several aspects um, that we need to look at, and and I believe. Number one, I believe, is that is that all elected officials, in particularly elected officials, need to realize that that um, the Puyallup people have been here before, mm -hmm. and they are literally our hosts, and we are on their land. And um, because of that, it would just be common courtesy to have them always at the table, to always invite them when big environmentally problematic things are happening, they need to be the first ones there and hear about it. And unfortunately, what what kind of happens is that, you know, somebody at the port will send them an email and then they don't hear back and they say, well, we, we reached out, you know, they're not talking to us. But really, what is one email? I mean, it would be nicer if they had some type of a, an ambassadorship to where they have a dedicated staff person that knows how to go and, and meet with the tribe to at least have, have open dialogue. And so I think that, number one, would be a, a good, positive way to start up better relations. But then, number two, there are also real contractual obligations that the port has, for example. When they did the lands claim settlement in the 80s, it very clearly spells out that with anything environmental, they need to meaningfully consult with the Puyallup tribe. Now, the fact that the Puyallup tribe has already put in motion several lawsuits 
and has filed um, several work stop orders, tells me that they have not been meaningfully consulted. Hmm. And then besides that, we also have have um, treaty rights, the, the Bolt decision um, from the 70s, which clearly um, gives, gives the Puyallup tribe the right to fish in all accustomed places and the right to demand government clean up all the salmon spawning habitat. So the halibos, for example, is so toxic and really um, it needs to be cleaned up so that salmon can live in there and therefore the Puyallup can continue fishing. So the Puyallup, what, what they're saying right now is that within four years, their salmon run might be gone completely. And so to consider that we've only shown up as, you know, I guess European descendant people, we've only shown up 150 years ago. And what is never being taken into account is that we had a working, sustainable, thriving economy, an economy that fed the people that were here. And by our ways of doing, of, of plundering, of over-harvesting, of, of exporting everything and polluting everything, we've caused that thriving economy to collapse. So so that's where we are at now, and, and we all collectively have to make a decision whether or not it's important enough that we have protein sources swimming in from the ocean, literally swimming into our mouths, and, and fertilizing our, our rainforest and making our trees grown really, really big and sustaining all the life all around. That's what salmon used to do. And with them not coming back, um, what, what, what have we lost? And, and will our future generations, you know, look back at us and say, what, what have you done? Where were you? Hmm. So you mentioned these treaties from the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So do they have legal power to stop the plant? They absolutely do. They're, they're law. They're written in the law. So is that happening? It, like I said, um, the, 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 um, the lawsuits are they're still ongoing. The appeals are still ongoing. The shoreline permit it hasn't been um, decided yet. So it's somewhere up in limbo, and, and we just have to look to the courts to, in the end, make the right decision and, and follow through with the treaty rights. We, if we sign a treaty, we make a promise, and we should be held to that promise. But construction has begun. Construction has begun, and that's pretty interesting um, because, uh, for example, Puget Sound Energy um, was told by the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency that they would not receive the air permit until they have a complete application in and it's been vetted and it's been you know, researched and looked at and, and, and been approved. And that hasn't happened yet. And so without the air permit, they actually do not have the right to build. And the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency sent Puget, Puget Energy a letter um, telling them that they cannot build because they don't have a, a permit. And that has been completely ignored. And so it kind of comes down to um, between these agencies, you know, the, the city is the SIPA the state environmental, you know, impact uh, law. SIPA lead agency and uh, the the port holds the lease, and um, 
the EPA is supposed to supervise and, and do, uh, you know, certain permits. And then we have, you know, the Department of Ecology, Fish and Wildlife, all these people also doing permits. So the question is, if any one of those agencies give direct instructions to Puget Sound Energy and they ignore it, where do we go? Who is enforcing our agencies? I always you know, naively assume that any governmental agency, if they if they tell you to do something, then you have to kind of follow it through. In this case, that's not really happening. And uh, frankly, I don't know where it's all going, but we know that uh, Puget Sound Clean Air Agency said they, they will eventually have to do some type of a, a, a punitive action or a corrective action. We don't know what it is and when it will be. So it sounds like you're saying there's various legal cases, there's various um, governmental regulations they're not following, and yet construction continues. So that means that the port is just allowing this? I don't think the port, even though they're, they hold the lease, I'm not sure they're, they're an enforcement arm. I don't, I don't think the port has authority to enforce Puget Sound Clean Air Agency's regulations and rules. So see, see what's unfortunate. What's unfortunate with the whole situation is that um, any fossil fuel facility that produces or 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 stores or refines over one million gallons of any fossil fuel fuel a year a year, that they're supposed to be um, under state Department of Ecology, and that's Washington state law, mm. and so. Puget Sound Energy, clearly they're building an 8 million gallon liquefied gas refinery that's more than 1 million of any fuel. But but what has happened is that the city accepted the SIPA lead agency by simply declaring that all other agencies said they would be okay with it. And, and they have signed letters that they would be okay with the city taking on the lead agency. Now that very much circumvents or, or you know, sidesteps our Department of Ecology, who has more staff, more expertise. They, you know, they just understand those situations better because they're usually the ones permitting all this stuff. Mm. So what I don't understand is why, actually, I do understand it, but I, I don't believe it's reasonable for the city to take it on and then clearly not having having enough staff, not having enough expertise to the point where we were asking city staff questions about LNG and they would say, well, this is too technical. I'm sorry, we can't answer it. That's not a really um, even a practical way to supervise something that's going to be in our community with safety and health risk for 50 years. So what's going on? You said you understand. So what's, what's, well, what's, the, I, what's the dirty I, uh, truth behind that? I understand that the city likes to take on um, being the SIPA lead agency because clearly if they make this happen, then they will, they will financially benefit. They will see tax benefits from the refinery. So if the city has a direct financial potential windfall, it's, it's in my mind, it would be a conflict of interest to then still take on such a project for your own community. So that's, that's, that's where my thinking's at. But, you know, it doesn't mean everybody, everybody will see it the same way, but I, I feel like it is a conflict of interest. And it, it, it doesn't provide the same oversight and the same, you know, professional oversight. So I think someone who may not be super knowledgeable about the situation might think to themselves, hey, didn't we almost get um, some other plant and then there was a community outcry and it stopped? 
How is that different from what's happening now? That's a very good point. And that's an excellent question. And that's one we hear all the time. And that is totally true. So what happened is that by sheer accident, we found out that this methanol refinery was coming to town. And and at first he was like, yeah, well, whatever, let's just look into it. And so we looked into it and it looked like it was going to use tremendous amounts of water, create tons of pollution and create a, a toxin. Methanol is actually a, a classified pesticide. And so um, it was early enough. Hmm. We heard about it a year and a half before the public comment period even started. And then those of you who remember who went to the convention center, we had a big public meeting with a lot of people showing up. And so when you have that kind of community outpouring, then everybody takes a step back and looks at the situation and they second guess, and that's what happened. He left town. But with PSE, the public comment happened right around the same time. You know, when we were mm-hmm. all really, really busy with methanol, just a little bit before methanol, LNG actually slipped under the radar. So so what happens is if anybody wants to build something with this kind of an impact, you have to announce to the public that there will be a public hearing or a public meeting. For um, this LNG refinery, they sent notices to anybody who lives within 400 feet of the of the site. And as you can imagine, down in the port, it's not even legal yeah. to live there except if you're a detainee. So, so right. um, people didn't know about it. It wasn't really publicized. It wasn't. It wasn't public knowledge. With methanol, we knew it was common, so we we alerted everybody. We had flyers and announcements, and we were out mm-hmm. in the community. With LNG, it just slipped under the radar. And frankly, at the very beginning, when I heard about it, I had this thought too that, oh, it's, you know, it's better than diesel. Oh, it's gas. You know, gas is so clean. You know, gas, natural gas, it's natural. It's renewable, sustainable. I had all those beliefs for a little while until I, you know, hmm. took, took a deeper look into the situation and realized that, you know, it's actually polluting out here. So... It sounds like we were never given a chance to try to stop this with community outcry. So what what can we do now? What's happening now? <laughs> What's happening now is is that, um, like I said, that, that one of the last permits that hasn't been issued yet, besides the ones that are under appeal, is the air permit. Mm-hmm. So um, the Puget Sound Clean Air Agency has made an exception and has um, already held one public meeting. That was last Monday. And then the next public uh, hearing where you can actually show up and ask all the questions you ever wanted to know about this refinery and its air pollutants, it's very specific to air pollutants, will be this Friday. That's at Bates Technical College at 1101 uh, South Yakima. And um, it'll be from 10 a.m. to noon. And that's just for you to go and have some questions answered you might have and so then they have a their public comment period will open i believe december the 4th and it will remain open for anywhere between 45 and 60 days so it might run all the way into february and they'll do a real um, public hearing and the public hearing with public comment means you can show up and you have two or three minutes to state your case as to why you think this should or should not happen Kind of like it has happened, you know, with other, with other issues like the like the interim regulations or something like that. So that'll be in the January beginning of February, and then after that, we'll we'll see what happens. So that could 
potentially stop it? It could potentially stop it, but again, um, Puget Sound Clean Air Agency is bound by the Washington State Clean Air Act and by the, the Federal Clean Air Act. So they have to follow those guidelines. And unfortunately, with many of these policies, oftentimes they're actually directly written by industry. And if they're not directly written by industry, industry definitely had a big seat at the table and was part of formulating those policies, which means that Puget Sound Clean Air Agency is extremely restricted. Like they can't look at the pollution upstream, the fracking, the the water, the tremendous harm it does to indigenous communities in in Canada and, and also the United States. They can't take into account the leakage of the methane, the pipelines, the trucks, the ships. They can really only look at, at those four exhaust pipes, uh, flares at the at the um, facility, and that's that's um, that's extremely limited. So what it means, what this means is that, as it happens at the moment, and as it has it happened this entire time, is that nobody looks at cumulative effects of all these different polluting industries in the port. So every every little bit is looked at it very separately. And if if those parts that we are looking at, if those emissions don't shoot over the threshold too much, then it doesn't it doesn't trigger, you know, any any bigger um, investigation. So what what we also know is that only particulate matter 2.5 those are small tiny tiny soot particles that come from diesel and from from firewood and stuff like that those are being measured and reported on a regular basis at the port all other chemicals like benzene toluene formaldehyde all of that really not nice stuff chromium none of this is being measured and so what i would like to see is that if if you know, the poor commission and the city council and the county council, if they all feel like, you know, we need more industry, we need more of the stuff, we need, you know, LNG, then at least have a decent demand of these of these um, industries to tell them you have to provide regular air monitoring. The public has a right to know what goes into our air at what times, and we need to be able to make those adult decisions for ourselves, whether we want to move there, whether we want to raise our kids, whether we want to, you know, provide more more healthcare, more, more, you know, asthma support, more cancer support. I mean, all those things, I, I believe, need to be taken into account. And why not ask of industry to do it? They come to Tacoma because it's cheap, because we're there, because it's available. And so, you know, at least protect us. Hmm. So is there a big, I, I, I know that you're affiliated with a very strong environmental organization. Um, is there going to be a big kind of movement to get people to come to these hearings? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a fairly plugged in person in Tacoma and I didn't, this is the first time hearing about it. So I'm wondering if, are we going to have, you know, the thousands of people that showed up to protest methanol come to, to the anti-LNG hearings? No, I don't think there'll be thousands of people. Where are those people that showed up for methanol? Why aren't they showing up for LNG? That's a really good question. And um, I, I think if um, 
If you notice what has happened with Puget Sound Energy, and we talked about this earlier a little bit, on how there is advertisement on the radio, yeah. on TV, you go to you go to Twitter, you go to Facebook. The Port of Tacoma runs advertisements for Puget Sound Energy. So they have a they have a a never ending budget. They actually did push polls. They called people in their homes. They go door to door with flyers that are pro LNG in in target communities like Northeast Tacoma. So to stand up against such a, a massive propaganda machine is is really really difficult now. Northwest Innovation Works, the methanol people, they came into town, they had no idea, they had done no promotional anything. But Puget Sound Energy has been around a long time, so they've and they witnessed what happened with methanol. They did not want this to happen to them. So they um, have been doing so much propaganda that I think, like you say yourself, it's very difficult for the public to discern, for the public to understand that they'll end up paying for it, for the public to understand that it is a refinery and it comes with pollution. So, so those things have been pretty much, you know, swept under the table. And it, it is unfortunate that, you know, at, at the hearing on Monday, for example, I would have loved to see people from Citizens for a Healthy Bay or the Tides Flats Coalition or other, you know, local environmental groups to actually show up when it really comes down to the nitty gritty and it comes down to directly affecting our health. And and mostly who was there, there were a lot of people from Seattle that come down because they're very concerned about, you know, LNG ships, ship, LNG ships going by their, their neighborhoods as well. So there were quite a few people from Seattle. Um, there was a lot of people from, from my group, RedefineTacoma.org, and there were a lot of um, tribal members that show up again and again and, and speak their voices as, as much as they can. Hmm. So coming up to the 2018 elections, what, which offices in particular should we have our eyes on? What, what can people be doing to have any kind of effect on this and future decisions such as this? Yeah, elections. <laughs> so, I mean, is it city council? Is it county council? Is it state reps? I mean, you mentioned Fi and Jenkins. So does that mean, I mean. It's everybody. It's everybody. Now, um, look Look at the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They, they believe, and they stated, um, they believe that gas is, is, our next, is our panacea. Gas, gas will solve our problem. So like methanol, for example, was strongly supported by the governor. And it even came down from D.C. And LNG as well is so far been supported by the governor. And if the governor likes it, you can imagine that the state reps like it and that other politicians, you know, will will uh, go along with it. And I, I just um, don't understand why there is this this kind of dichotomy to where they say climate change is real and we need to do something and we need to build resiliency and we need to make all this planning and all this studying, which is great, which is what we need. But on, on the other hand, they push for methane, which is the worst climate chaos accelerator. So I, I think um, when you when you look at the elections, just always look where these people come from. Where the where the monies come from that support them, hmm. it's it's important that you do your research. You know, it's very important. And while while you know, we've got a couple of council members elected that we supported. I don't want to say they got elected, you know, because of us, mm-hmm. but we supported them on on their record. 
um, it, it wasn't all of the candidates that we would have liked to see. And and most difficult was um, the port elections, yeah. I feel. And that's because we had two amazing, smart, extremely dedicated and very well-versed people in Kristen Ang and Noah Davis. Mm-hmm. And when, when I look at the port commission, um, many of them have been there for like a quarter century. Yeah. And what happens when you have an institution where the same people are doing the same thing year in and year out, it becomes myopic. There's no fresh ideas. There's not really a true exchange of ideas happening. So that's one problem I see with the poor commission makeup as it is. And then the second problem I see is if, if you look at where they're at in their lives, they're not going to be around for all that many more terms, <laughs> even though there's no term limits right. um, at the poor commission. But what, what I feel what really needs to happen is they need to grow new and young talent that then at some point can take over the reign and can run the port and make it be the best port. But if, if suddenly you have people that are that are coming out of the blue that, that don't have the experience because they didn't have a chance to be a commissioner and being mm-hmm. being basically, you know, brought along, mm-hmm. um, then I think we are we are creating institutional, you know, myopsy and just and just um it's it's dangerous for, for anything into the future, I feel. Are there port seats up for re election in twenty eighteen? I think they're every they're four years, so I think they're they and they're alternated. I think there yeah. might be a couple coming up okay. uh, next time around. But I haven't actually looked at, at future elections yet. <laughs> <laughs> we just finished one. Yeah, we just did. What should I have asked you about? What didn't we cover? I, I think when um when people wonder about this LNG and and um clearly there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's mm. a lot of confusion out there. And then there's a lot of propaganda out there. So in order to kind of cut through all this chatter and to cut through, you know, the millions of dollars that are that are being poured into um, misinforming the people, quite frankly, would be for those in our government who have supported this, which is, you know, quite a few at the city and everybody at the port and several at the state for them to get together and create real data and real analysis. And we've actually asked people, you know, council people for a long time to create a true economic analysis. Hmm. Let us know what are the benefits, what are the costs. Money is the driver. Money is what makes our economy go around. If that's your reason to support it, show us the numbers. There has been no economic study done. Safety, another big concern for many people in Northeast, for, for people that work at the port. It's a huge concern because it's 8 million gallons LNG sitting in one spot. That's the equivalent of 166,000 tons of TNT. Wow. 166,000 tons of TNT. Hiroshima was 15,000 tons and Nagasaki was 20,000 tons of TNT energy equivalent. So this facility has not been independently looked at. The people who did safety analysis for the facility is the contractor. They consequently got hired to do the job. So if $340 million are the price tag, then reason 
would tell you that a safety evaluation would make it so that you will be the one who will eventually get hired to build it. So mm -hmm. I, I don't believe we should trust um, the safety evaluations as they stand. Besides, the actual tank has never been evaluated. Just little bits and pieces, little pipeline bits and little pieces. The tank itself has never been evaluated. And that's kind of the greatest concern. Do they have anything to say about our huge earthquake risk around here? They say it's built to withstand a, a one one in a thousand years uh, earthquake. They say. They say that the port of Tacoma is predicted to be flooded um, by 2050, and that's a city of Tacoma climate study. And, and the facility has a lease that will run till 2068. Wow. So I, I believe um, a, a real, thorough, truly independent study on safety risks, and that includes LNG tanker trucks that will be rattling through our neighborhoods on a daily basis. That means LNG ships and barges that will traverse one of our most congested waterways, going very, going by very highly populated areas in, in Seattle and all these cities along the way. Vashon Island is very nearby. So having, having a true safety evaluation that includes all the components, have a decent economic analysis that's independent, and then have a more thorough and more encompassing health study that's not just looking at the this, this small you know, parts and just that very location, but actually looks at the overall air in the port. I, I feel like those are not um, those are not outrageous um, questions and demands to be had, if, especially if they sell the facility as an economic boon and as a clean air boon and show us the numbers. If, if, if that's what you're telling us, then I'd like to see. Hmm. I just can't believe how awful this whole thing is. Well, Toad, I, I had this whole thing about Toad. Um, like the ships they're converting are super old. They're like already 15 years old. And, you know, Toad had to, had one ship go down because it was dilapidated. Did you hear about that? No. The Alfaro up here. So they go, they go um, Tacoma, Alaska and back. Yeah. And in Florida, they go Florida, Puerto Rico and back. Yeah. And in Florida, one was on its way and it went down in a storm. The Coast Guard realized that did the analysis on the accident. It killed 33 crew. That the lifeboats were full of water. It was rotten through. There were rusty holes that were painted over. And the, that ship had a sister ship that were built exactly the same at the same time. The other ship was called the Alianque. The and they were going to be up here. They were going to be our ships. And the Coast Guard scrapped it. It was in such terrible condition. They actually said, you have to take it out of commission and scrap it. So Toad has not a very good record. And they're owned by Selchuk. And Salchuk is a Seattle a family business. It's one family, and meaning if it's a family business, you have no, you can't look at any of their, the income or the documents or anything like that. And they're they're also owners of oil. They're oil explorers. They're doing Arctic oil exploration. So when they say Toad is so clean and so local and so friendly, it's not quite that. And they have a six hundred million um, military contract every year. So. Where can people go for more information? Where can people go? <laughs> so there are several um, local organizations that are doing really great work. And I want to give a big shout out to Sightline Institute, especially Toika Powell. She's an LNG specialist and she really knows her stuff. So she's always a, a really good resource. Um, and then I am with Redefine Tacoma. So we're 
a 100% volunteer local group. Um, we are concerned about the environment. That's our main focus. We're working really closely with the Puyallup Water Warriors, and uh, we support each other in, in, in this to clean up our port, particularly. So you can find um, a lot of information on our webpage, which is redefinedtacoma.org. And we are very active on social media. Uh, Redefine Tacoma Community Forum, and you also find us on Twitter. And we are also um, available, like I am here today, we're always available to come and meet with people and just sit down for conversation. Always glad to do that. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Citizen Tacoma podcast today. We are part of the Channel 253 network where you can also find the Move to Tacoma podcast as well as the Nerd Farmer podcast. And the Flounders B-Team podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us about anything you've heard on the show today or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, maybe there's something you've been wondering about that maybe we can investigate for you, please contact me at jennyjacobs253 at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at Citizen Tacoma. Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Jenny Jacobs and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.